Thank you. So um, I spoke on this a couple of weeks back as part one, which is uh, what did the death of Jesus accomplish? And I want to um, uh, introduce and talk about part two of this um, today. So uh, I spoke on this word called atonement, and I just thought I'll expound on that so, uh, and, and talk about it and what it means for us. Yeah, so... Um, in, 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 if you can see the slide on top, hopefully you can, um, you, you'll see that the atonement, it has two pictures there. There's a lamb that's sent into the wilderness, symbolically carrying the sins of the people. There is a lamb that's slaughtered on the altar of sacrifice. And Jesus did both. Atonement is basically to cover an offering, cover for an offense or a set of offenses and a price to be paid for. There is a price for sin. There is a price for separation. There is a price for disobedience. And that is what Jesus' death and separation accomplished. And there are a set of verses which I thought I'll, basically, I'll read them because I think they are, they, they are um, specific and important to what we are going to um, go through. So, so Hebrews 9 says, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Yeah, that's what atonement is about. Uh, Romans 5, 8, I really like in the Message Bible, it says, but God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use to him, whatever. So it wasn't that, you know, we, normally you'd redeem something that is of value, that has some significance, that has some benefit to the, pers- to the redeemer. Here God goes out of his way to redeem humankind, people, us. Uh, although we, the Bible says we've actually got no value for him to do that. And he's done that um, because he loves us. Uh, James, which we meditated on a few months back, there's a brilliant verse, which actually is the essence of the gospel, which says, mercy triumphs over judgment. There's judgment, God's judgment, which is uh, eternal separation and hell for people who are separated, disobeyed, who are basically born as humans. But God chose to provide us mercy, and through the mercy, through that mercy, offers us redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. But it's a two-part thing. And Hebrews, going back to Hebrews again, talks about two sets of verses there, two sets of things there. It says, made perfect, which means perfection is a done deal, one-time thing. However, individuals, us, are being made holy, which is present continuous, which is an ongoing thing. So is atonement a done deal? Yeah. Is it an ongoing deal? Yes. And that's what we're going to see today. Hopefully that sets the context. I would really encourage us to go back and read Leviticus 16, where God instructs um, Aaron to follow a whole set of procedures on both the sacrificial lamb and um, uh, the lamb that's sent into the wilderness or the scapegoat lamb, 
which is sent into the wilderness, um, nobody then followed up on, follows up on what happens to the lamb. Is it eaten up by wild animals? Does it die of hunger or thirst or, 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 or you know, lack of direction? And, um, you know, nobody knows. But then symbolically, sins of the people are put upon the lamb, sacrificed so that they are allowed to go into the temple. And then the, a, another lamb is sent off into the wilderness so that their sins are forgiven. That's what Jesus' death accomplished. And that's what atonement uh, principally is about. Right, so I want to focus on two chapters today on this. One is Isaiah 53, and I'm going to read some words from that. And the other is Matthew chapter 26. So basically, we're going to circle around these three chapters. Leviticus 16, Isaiah 53, and Matthew chapter 26, which sort of chronicles uh, the, the events leading to Jesus' crucifixion. Right, I pulled out some verses from there. You may or may not be able to read it, but I will go back to Isaiah 53 and read a few words there, which, I mean, while preparing this, you know, I, I just felt, it, it, it sort of felt so real at that time. So it starts by saying, it, this is now written, remember, 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. So it starts by saying, uh, he had no actually, he had no stately form, majestic splendor, or appearance. Uh, we live in a world which is driven entirely by appearance. In this Instagram world, everything is photoshopped, touched upon, and uh, appearance drives a lot of things we consume and how many of our decisions, whether we know it or not, is made. But he had no appearance when he started off. So he basically started off on the back foot. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously reading from the New King James versions, and I'm going to pick out a few words out of that, which are very powerful and stand out. It says, he was despised and rejected. Man of sorrows, pain, grief. We did not appreciate or esteem him. He was degraded and humiliated. He was wounded. He was punished. We turned away from him. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. These two words I thought I mean, the ones that resonated with me the most, and I will explain, are these two phrases. Taken away. Cut off. Assigned with the wicked. Anguished. Responsible for other people's sins. Poured his life into death. Counted among the transgressors. These are very powerful words. And therefore it, was, it wasn't simply a case of, you know, killed by a bullet wound. He went through a death which the Romans had perfected over time of humiliation, of uh, pain, of uh, distress, of making sure that 
the onlookers who saw it really got the message of what the cross, what death on the cross actually meant. Three words stand out, and which is what I put down at the bottom. Um, he died for our sins. He died for our sickness. He died for our sorrows. It also says that what he did was some of it was, was visible, physical pain. Some of it was invisible. He was cut off. He was rejected. Uh, we turned our faces from him. We esteemed him not. Outside and inside. Some of these are one-off. Some of these are often repeated. Temporary, long-standing. Some of these are what you would call paper cuts, simple things, simpler things. Some of these are deep. And that's why I will refer to Matthew 26 in a minute. You know, the Bible says, one of the end verses in Matthew 26 is, they all forsook him and fled. Yeah? Imagine if, if the Bible had finished at Matthew 26. There is no gospel, isn't it? Here's a leader of people, a teacher, someone who expounds God's words, who does miracles and wonders. They forsook him and fled. That's how it finishes. And of course, it wasn't just physical. It was mental and it was emotional. So Jesus' death did far more than what we have often assumed it to do. It wasn't just about physical healing. It wasn't just about physical restoration. It wasn't just about physical and emotional. It was physical, emotional, mental, all of it put together. And therefore, if we go through things like these, as we do with life, he truly understands because he's been there. Rejected, he's been there. Turned away, he's been there. Ignored, he's been there. Wrongly accused, he's been there. Cut off, he's been there. Distressed, he's been there. Anguished, he's been there. He knows. And that's the difference between a lamb and the lamb of God. The lamb of God would not have, the lamb physical lamb, a lamb, would not have had the mental capacity to understand emotional strain, emotional breakdown, or mental well-being and lack of it. Symbolically put on it. But the Lamb of God understands. That's what gives us purpose. That's what when, it, when we say Jesus took our place, it's for the entire being of us in ways we see, in ways we don't see. And therefore, I would request you to go back and read Isaiah 53. Now, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Again, it's a big chapter. It's got parallels to Mark chapter 14 and Luke chapter 22, which I will not touch upon. I just want to paint a picture. I don't have it here, but I want to paint a picture. Let me just drink this water.
it starts by saying that there was a plot to kill Jesus. And then it ends by saying that they, everybody forsook and left. They just fled. There are some interesting characters there. Now, obviously, we are seeing it, um, you know, with hindsight, with the Holy Spirit, understanding that the death of Jesus wasn't just a physical one, but way beyond that. So, there are only two people in that chapter who really seem to understand what's going on. That actually, he's going to die, and his death isn't just a physical one. And there are two people at the two ends of the spectrum. One, of course, is Judas. That's why he betrays him. All along for three and a half years, what has he been thinking? This is a man who's going to come and establish a kingdom. And I'm going to get a place in his cabinet. Yeah, And you know what? Christians think of it like that. I'm sorry to say, but you know, if you look at some of the goings on in the world, in People think that, and I, I will use provocatively this example, you know, make America great again, is become part of the Christian slogan as well. Because people think Jesus is somehow going to come and change the nation through a politician. No different to what Judas thought, I think. Again, I, I, I don't mind being corrected because, I'm, again, it's my viewpoint. It's not theology. So please feel free to correct me and have a conversation with me subsequently if you wish. So that's what they did. You know, 300 years before Jesus lived Alexander the Great. And maybe Judas thought, here was, here's the Jewish version of Alexander the Great. And he's going to come and save us from um, Roman tyranny and set us free and help us you know, pioneer uh, a Jewish kingdom. But Jesus said his, his kingdom is not of this world. And therefore, I think when Jesus spoke to the second person I'm talking about, which is the woman who comes and anoints him with oil. So two things there. Historians say that the woman who comes and anoints him with oil is, Ma is Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus who had spent most of her adult life as a prostitute. Remember? They were close friends with Jesus. And of course, my, uh, Lazarus dies and is brought back to life. Again, we, we can sort of see the contrast in all of this. Here's a learned accountant who actually mistakes Jesus' entire mission as a political leader and has aspirations to be part of that political leadership. But here's a woman who society has shunned, who people, in theory, should not be in contact with, who actually finds the real purpose for which Jesus has come. That is the contrast of the gospel. The ones we think have found him are the ones who actually haven't found him. The ones we think are outcasts, lost causes, and who have been given no chance by society are the ones who actually end up finding him. And she, therefore, using an oil, which apparently is a year's wages, pours it on his head, and then Jesus goes on to say, she did it for my burial. I think it's at probably at that point that the penny drops for Judas, and he decides, that's it. Uh, I'm going to 
do what I am going to do, and therefore betrays him. But then as you read through the chapter, Jesus is sort of um, moved around between people. There's Annas and Caiaphas. One is the uh, father-in-law of the other. I don't know which one is who. And then, of course, Pilate, the Roman uh, senator. And there's a, there's a mob mentality wherein everybody joins in and says, kill him. There's another part which is they try and find witnesses. And the Gospels say that they actually couldn't find witnesses to agree. Here's a phrase that's an oxymoron. False witness. Witness by definition is true. But they tried to find false witnesses. Now, we can all sort of step back and look, sit on our high horse and say, they did it. The Romans did it. The um, you know, people around him did it mob mentality. But ultimately, if we look back at Isaiah 53, what made Jesus cut off, rejected, despised, um, um, uh, 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 made his soul be poured into death was our own sins. Would, uh, would my reaction have been any different? No. Um, they all forsook him at the f- first instance. I probably would have. Um, Peter um, betrayed him. I probably would have. Yeah. Uh, um, would I have disowned him? Yeah. So it's normal human reactions we see there. And the reason it's chronicled and written so detailed with everyone's mistakes is because of that precise reason. That in the midst of all this, actually there was a period, there there was a phrase there where the only thing he had for himself it's probably the, the, the robe he was wearing, which was, which was made from a single piece of cloth or line. And then they found, okay, this is of value. Let's trip him off that as well. And these are very strong words that emphasize the depth to which Jesus goes in order for us to be saved. There is a verse in 1 John that I'm reminded of. It says, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God, sons, daughters, children of God. And that's what it is. In all of this, the common thread that's running through is God through Jesus' death saying, I value you, I love you, I want you in my kingdom. So I encourage us to go back and read Matthew 26, alongside um, Isaiah 53. There's lots to... Yeah, there's lots to um, go through there, so I won't touch on it. There's one other thing I wanted to say, which is Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane. And it actually says, he went through anguish and pain and separation before praying, and one of the gospels says his sweat came out like blood, drops of blood. So he went through things that we go through uh, to, to, uh, at, a, at, a, at, a, at probably orders of magnitude higher. Therefore, he's able to understand and change us. Right. Again, what 
else does this accomplish? So Jesus' death gives us eternal life. Great. He went through a whole sequence of things of rejection, pain, suffering, being cut off. All of that so that we might be saved. You would have seen elements of this. God takes broken pieces, turns them into masterpieces. There is a reason I've not put lines in there. Um, it'll be evident in the next slide. And then he changes us, you know, into jars of clay which can hold treasure. All of these are principles we probably heard of. Uh, but what's interesting is, as a child of God, sorry, what I found is, it's not linear. We often assume God takes broken pieces, turns them into lovely, beautiful jars into which he puts his, um, um, his, his son and his spirit live within us and changes us into wonderful new beings. We assume it's a linear, one-off thing. It isn't. To me, that has been the biggest learning in the last two years, which is he, God almost seems to do one impossible thing at a time or multiple impossible things at a time. It's not a one-off change. It's not, here you are, give it all, I'll change you into something wonderful, go away, and you're, you're, you're the done deal. It doesn't work like that. I think it's very cyclical. The, the Bible uses a phrase called, from glory to glory, which actually means we actually start with glory. Yeah, curiously. Where does that glory come from? That glory is because Jesus, the righteousness of God, comes and lives within us. So we don't start with nothing. We, start, we are righteous because he chooses to live in us. Now remember, righteousness and, and fruit bearing are actually not quite the same. Righteousness of Christ allows us to bear fruit. But fruit isn't righteousness. Fruit is an outcome of the righteousness of Christ. So there are things he continually transforms and changes within us. Maybe one, maybe two, maybe multiple. And because it's a cyclical process, we often miss that God is in the process of transforming us over and over and over again until he's satisfied. And because it's a cyclical process, we often lose. Sometimes we lose hope and say, Lord, where are you? Why are you doing all this? That's because our understanding is very linear. But the Bible says we go from glory to glory into his image. And that verse, which is in, I think it's 1 Corinthians 4, 7, wherein, wherein it says... We have this treasure in jars of clay. And the reason I put the same verse on two sides is that we start with that. We don't start with anything. We start with that. God continues to work and transform us. And we end with that as well. How does that work? I don't know. I have to ask the Holy Spirit. One by one by one, he will change us. As a group, he changes us. Actually, as a church community, he's transforming and changing us. 
as, 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 a, as a body of Christ, we are growing, being prepared for his coming. There's one verse that sort of illustrates it, and um, it's in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. There are four parts to it. The Bible says, whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. So I pulled that out into four words. Called, created, crafted. And then there's a posh French word there, cachet. Which actually means a signet ring. Which actually means you're sort of there to, as an approval. So, God calls us, but, and he creates within a new thing through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and continues to create. But it's not simply creation as in calling out of nothing. It is also crafting. It is also taking what is in there and sharpening it, shaping it, making it more into his image. What's the ultimate purpose? The ultimate purpose is that we become, we acquire the superior status of a signet ring. That's what Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about in Romans chapter 8. Right, so what does all this mean? And I'm, I'm going to spend the last five minutes talking about two things which are deeply personal to me. So I was reading, as I was preparing with Isaiah 53, two things hit me very strongly, and two of those words are put there. One is rejection, and the other is anguish. It might be different for different people. And uh, Psalm 77 talks about it. Uh, it talks about David saying, Lord, will you remember me? Will you think about me? Will you hear what I'm saying? Are you even aware I'm saying something? Jesus said the same thing on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I put these two things because, as I say, it's deeply personal for me because uh, rejection is something, actually the opposite of rejection, which is approval, is something I've always had in life, for most of my life anyway. And therefore, I've grown up with a sense, I, I grew up both before becoming a Christian and after, that I'm never going to experience this. Um, and it's very hard when it hits you first. You realize your whole world sort of collapses and you think, gosh, is this how it is? And uh, again, a long story. But it's, it's incredibly hard when it hits. And there's a sense of empathy for people who actually have been through it. And then, you know what? It's when for the first time in my life, I realize that Jesus has been through it. No one cared about where he was. Or it says he, he, was, he started his life rejected. He grew up as a teacher doing what he did as a social outcast. And on the cross, he was rejected. So if anyone understood, he did. The second is probably even more challenging, which is 
when you've had answered prayers over a long time, uh, again, there's a sense of bravado about it to say God is going to answer every prayer of mine. And when there are prayers that are left unanswered, the heart starts to cry out, say, God, where are you? Are you ever going to listen to me? Are you there? Are you even there? And there are questions about the faith. Questions about, is, um, is what, what did I do wrong? What, what did I do right? Where did I do wrong? Where did I? And there's a, there's a period of introspection and going back into time and saying, maybe I did that wrong, this wrong. Of course, we can't change the past. So, in the, in, buried under both of those is what I've called the fear of being forgotten. Where does approval come from? The need for approval come from? The thirst for approval come from? We don't want to be forgotten. Where does uh, anguish or lack of it comes from? We don't want to be forgotten. And it's, it's sort of a very primal need of us as humans. And um, Jesus went through most of his life and through, I mean, as the son of God, he didn't need anyone's approval. You know, when he started his ministry, his father from heaven said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He didn't need to, but he experienced it because we have. So many of what we go through, and I picked out, as I say, two, and your journey may be different, is what Jesus went through. And again, why I picked those two? Because they deeply resonate with me. He solved it. To put it mildly, Jesus solved it. Can I solve it? No. Am I the finished article? No, not yet. But I'm on the way there. And through changing me from glory to glory into his image, I find my purpose. I find my identity in Jesus. I become a vessel of honor. I become a jar with treasures of clay. Sorry, clay with treasures within. So, it's not a prescriptive one-off answer. But I think it's worth for us, particularly in, in a time like this, it's worth spending time to think through what are my behaviors that persistently seem to come out, either in crisis or in a lack of crisis. And what attitudes and internal things are within that require a Jesus intervention. In my case, it's been these two. Uh, am I done? No. It's a long, ongoing process. But God, through the Holy Spirit, has shown me that, you know, you know what? I'm not the only one. David in Psalm 77 has beautifully expressed it. Jesus, when he was on the cross, wonderfully expressed what he had seen. He'd never said anything like that. But he did. Why have you forsaken me? Very powerful words. And therefore, we, we live in a country where depression and suicide rates are phenomenally high for what is the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. Why? Driven largely by things like this. And we, as the 
us the generation of healed people. Not people without disease, but people who are healed. There's a difference, huh? We are not immune to disease, but we can be healed. And I think that is the message that gives us hope, future, and transformation. Yeah? I'll stop there. Thank you. Happy to chat, happy to pray, and I would really request us to read through Isaiah 53, Matthew 26, and um, um, sorry? Leviticus 16. Yeah, those three. Thank you.